This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So yeah, I'm going to be lecturing on the music of Josh Ritter tonight. Um, I... Uh, this is my, my disclaimer I give every time. We come up with titles long before we actually write our lectures, and so sometimes the titles are... Um, sometimes we have to sort of reevaluate whether the title actually reflects what we're going to say. Um, I think this one is sort of reflects what I'm going to say today. We're, we're going to be listening to some of his music, which I would describe as, at times, playfully skeptical. Um, before leaping in, though, I want to give just a little bit of a a heads up on the kind of thing that we'll be doing tonight. We're going to be listening to a fair amount of music together and music of one musician, which is not something that people often do today in an evening, I think, and myself included. Most most of us reach far and wide to construct our playlists. We take a song from here and a song from there to make a the soundtrack of our lives. I drive my kids to school and, you know, a cell phone with... Amazon Music on it means you're just cranking through songs from a whole range of different <laughs> musicians uh, with no real sense of, um, <laughs> maybe no sense of, of anything else that musician has done. Um, yeah, as a result, we tend to judge bands or songwriters based on single songs. Um, and uh, to think we know everything there is to know about a musician based on one or two songs either to judge the quality of, of the music outright, like that band sucks, I hate that band because that song is bad, or judge the range of a uh, musician. This band is an emotional breakup song band. Um, we actually you know, don't necessarily know that, um, but we, we, we don't listen to more than one or two songs of any one person. Uh, the nice thing about taking the time to listen to many songs by one musician is that you get a sense of a body of work. That's what we're going to do tonight. We're trying to to expose ourselves to a body of work. No one song can say everything. Songs that try to say too much are usually a nightmare. Uh, because the finite nature of a song, we can only get a sense of the character of someone's songwriting by listening to many, many, many songs, a body of work. Uh, when we ask, what is going on in the head or the heart of this songwriter? What are they on about? No one song can answer that question. Uh, nor should it. And I've, I've experienced this myself. I, I write music myself and struggle to write songs. One of my struggles is that I often try to make a song say too much. I try to make it bear more than, than a single song can actually bear. And so usually my writing process involves ex- a massive expansion of lyrical content and then a necessary subtraction of that lyrical content to get it into something that someone would actually want to listen to, um, which is a really inefficient way to go about writing a song. But um, 
I need to narrow the scope, say less, and hence have a better song. And so that's uh, it's okay if you think of your work as uh, every, every song you write as being part of a body of work. No, no one song can say it all. Uh, tonight we'll be kind of just scratching the surface of some of Josh Ritter's work, hopefully um, giving you a sense of the range of the kinds of music that he writes. We'll also be talking about what we listen to. It's not just a listening evening. Uh, we will not be talking about each song exhaustively, but with the aim of understanding and appreciating the songs better. There'll be, uh, <clears throat> there will be some stuff, and I think um, most of his music is fairly accessible. But some some of his, you know, some of his songs are are, are less explicable. <laughs> you wonder what exactly is going on. I had a little bit of a panic attack earlier this week starting to listen through his music, and I'm like, I don't know what any of this is about. Why am I lecturing on this? Um, so uh, that's to be expected. It's actually maybe a good sign that, that you can't just explain everything about a song. Um, no really well-written song can be explained fully, uh, which means that no song is replaceable by a paragraph of prose. Um, no song is replaceable by a paragraph of prose. However much we might want to explain it in a paragraph of prose, uh, that paragraph will not be the song, and it won't do the same thing that the song does. So a good song has to stand as a song, and uh, really because music has its own mode of communicating, which is really important to recognize. And so when, uh, when we come across more enigmatic lyrics or things that don't make any sense, uh, I like to... Remember this quote from Flannery O'Connor. I'll, I'll uh, show it on the screen in a second. Flannery O'Connor, the great uh, Southern writer, received a letter. This is something she talks about in her book, Mystery and Manners. She's commenting on some of her own work uh, as a short story writer. She received a letter from a college freshman who had to probably write a paper about a Flannery O'Connor story. And the, the college freshman asked her to explain, what are your stories about? Uh, Flannery O'Connor responded by saying, try to enjoy them, which was not what the student wanted to hear. But then O'Connor goes on to, with this reflection. She says this. <clears throat> nope. Nope. In most English classes, the short story has become a kind of literary specimen to be dissected. Think about song instead of short story. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting this. She's talking about stories, but it very much applies. Every time a story of mine appears in a freshman anthology, I have a vision of it with its little organs laid open like a frog in a bottle. I realize that a certain amount of this, what is the significance, has to go on, but I think something has gone wrong in the process when... For so many students, the story becomes simply a problem to be solved, something you evaporate to get instant enlightenment. A story really isn't any good unless it successfully resists paraphrase, unless it hangs on and expands in the mind. Properly, you analyze to enjoy, but it's equally true that to analyze with any discrimination, you have to have enjoyed already. And I think that the best reason to hear a story read is that it should stimulate that primary enjoyment. So as with short stories, so with songs. Let's, let's try to enjoy in order to analyze with discrimination. 
in Flannery O'Connor's words, and this may sound risky, like we're letting our guard down or being uncritical, but I don't think that's true. Um, unless we do this to an extent, we won't, we won't even begin to understand what we're listening to. So the image I have is a good song is like a room with the door cracked open, and you have to push the door open and enter in to some degree and start poking around in the room to understand, even enough to evaluate it. Um, if you judge the song by the hallway outside the room, then you have judged what you do not yet understand, and, and you haven't entered into it. So that's enough preamble. Um, I'm just going to start by playing a... Um, well, no, I'll, I'll keep talking for another minute. <laughs> um, Josh Ritter is a American songwriter, still alive. He's not, not an, old, an old man. Um, from Idaho originally. Started playing music, I believe, uh, sort of playing at open, night, open mics in Boston, actually, uh, when he was young. And gradually worked on his songwriting and has uh, made a career of it. So he's, he's recorded 10 studio albums between 2000 and 2019. His most recent album is, album is 2019, I think. Uh, five live albums. He's written a number of plays as well. Um, his genre, I, hate, I hate random genre names, but people would call him uh, his genre Americana, which basically just means he's influenced by various strains of American folk music, uh, country blues, early rock and roll, that kind of thing. He's not, um, he's not a super impressive instrumentalist. He's not like a, a, uh, a virtuoso. Uh, he's, he's not, this sounds bad. He's not even a phenomenal singer, really. Um, but he's a wonderful songwriter and he sings his songs well. Uh, and he surrounds himself with amazing musicians to produce his albums. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is part of what we're going to be hearing. I think the reason that I wanted to talk about him tonight is a number of reasons, but I think he has a unique way with words, uh, which stands out for me. He's a, he's a gifted wordsmith. And his lyrics are at times uh, quite goofy and playful, but even when he is singing about something that's deeply serious or sad, there is a wit and a cleverness to his lyrics that I think is striking to me. Some of his songs just tell really good stories. Uh, he has, one of the appealing things about him as a musician is he has a, a, a tremendous joy in his music. If you Google images of Josh Ritter and you look at the pictures of him actually playing, there's lots of serious like studio shots with him look, trying to look profound. But um, if, you, if you Google images of him actually playing, he almost always has this, this huge grin on his face like he's doing the thing he loves the most. It's very endearing. I, I, it actually is um, uh, a good sign. Anyway... Uh, let's listen to a song which tells a story, and uh, I will say a little bit about it. Some of these songs, I think, um, can bear quite a lot of discussion, some of them less so, and that's okay. What I'll probably do is say a little bit about each song after we listen to it, and then invite anybody to, to, to comment or make observations, but then uh, I will eventually cut you off and we'll keep on with the lecture so we don't get too derailed. <clears throat> Nope. 
simple story of two lovers running away out west together. The boy sort of rescues the girl from a domineering prison warden of a father. Uh, but on their way west, one imagines on a train, it doesn't say it, but it's, it sounds like they're on a train with dining cars and whatever. 
They cross paths with the producer of silent movies and his film crew, which sets the, the story in a certain time period. So this is sort of, suddenly it's, um, whenever that time period is, silent movies. Um, the girl is recognized as a beauty with potential for the silver screen. The boy is given the consolation prize of being a villain in one scene for which he has to practice dying over and over and over, <laughs> falling out of windows and, uh, talk about developing a feeling of being expendable, you know, having to practice dying again and again. Meanwhile, the movie producer with his money, his big talk and his promises of a bright future becomes the villain and steals Lillian from the boy. And then, you know, the last verse is the last time I saw her, she was tied to the train track. So it's filming, filming an important scene, uh, in the movie. He's on a horse in the background. I had to look up what a tiger roan was. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a reference to a kind of horse. Um, uh, he's in the back with the extras sitting on a, on a horse, just another face in the crowd. He realizes that he's no longer important to the girl he rescued, but he's a side character in her story. And he's sort of a stepping stone for her as she moves on to bigger and better things. And then that's the end of the song. That's that's it. So, uh, sad song, but also somehow exuberant. <laughs> the way, the way it's performed and written and arranged. Uh, sort of witty and sort of playful, but I would say what, well done. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting, interesting idea for a story and well told. I think one of the things, one of my favorite lines of all is he made her the star, nope, sorry, um, he made her the star of the silent movie, but all she did was mouth the words, oh no. <laughs> all she had to do, you know, you know the, you know the thing where, you know, you say, and then, the, and then the, uh, the screen comes up with the words written on it. And, um, anyway, just just he has he has a great sort of cleverness of um, he's not talking in grand abstractions. He's he's very precise. He's he, he, he's he's placing you at a, at a scene at a particular moment and uh, making it come alive. <clears throat> any any uh, thoughts or observations about this song? We don't have to talk about it for long. But yeah, Jonathan. So, I mean, I, I like the lyrics, but a little bit about the music. What mm-hmm. what instrument is his main instrument, and what would he play during the track in the studio? Uh, I think guitar, acoustic guitar. A lot, a lot of the time is acoustic guitar. Um, he has various different other musicians playing piano and bass and electric guitar. Uh, he might play some piano. He does play some piano. Because I noticed it was a very like piano heavy track. On that, yeah, from that solo onward, where the piano is just like, dah, 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 dah. yeah, it's very, it's very upfront, and everything else drops out. So the piano is kind of the main thing with the drums, yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. So you're saying the the lyrics it tells this kind of sad story in a sense of loss or even betrayal, but the music is very exuberant. Yeah. So it almost seems to be contrasting with with the lyrics. What do you yeah. make of that? I mean, presumably that's intentional, right? Yeah. What is he trying to convey by that? Yeah, it's a good question, and and uh, sometimes with, with certain songwriters, the lyrical content and the and the setting of that content are so intentionally uh, juxtaposed, juxtaposed that that it's it, it's it's sort of it's being ironic, basically. This I don't know. I I sort of think that. It's just, it's sort of in a, in a ballad tradition where it's kind of, 
Um, I think he's just enjoying telling the story. And it's, even, though, even though it has a sad end, it's like an adventure. It's an adventure story. And it, I, don't, I don't know if I have a better answer than that. He's, it's, it doesn't seem like he's setting out to be super ironic. Um, it's more... Yeah, did you have any thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I was, I was thinking about the context myself, and I was thinking, like, it almost makes you feel like the narrator is just not taking himself too seriously. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, oh, these are the knocks of life. Mm-hmm. I thought the story was going to go this way. And it didn't. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh. Maybe this is the way to approach tragedies. <laughs> yeah. Like this kind of like, yeah, this this happened and mm-hmm. like not not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah. And it sounds yeah to me the way the story is told it it feels like a um, uh, everything is is spontaneous and done on a whim. Grab the girl, ran, get on the train, go west, you know, like, yay! And, and, and uh, it's almost like the, there's a haphazard kind of, like, uh, atmosphere to the whole song. If this was very, very sad, plodding, thoughtful ballad about losing his woman, it w- I, uh, I don't think anyone would want to listen to it. Maybe. maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sir. Uh, my extensive familiarity with silent movies mm-hmm. is from Singing in the Rain. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, like... I feel like there's something of, I don't know what the right word is, but like, it's, mel- it's melodramatic. Mm-hmm. There's melodrama to the whole yes. style. Yes, overacting, think, over, yeah. Yeah, and in some ways I think like, the music, the likeness of the music, you know, yep. kind of, I don't know, conjures that a little bit. Yep. It maybe even conjures a little bit of the train. <laughs> Heading west, like he's he's out, he's heading out on a train, heading west. Yeah. Any other thoughts, and we can move on. Kathy, yeah. I just see the Americana. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the second verse, the tune is so simple. Yeah. That I, by the second verse, I was singing. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. When you get to the la 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 Yeah, It'll get stuck in your head for sure. You gotta, yeah. 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 Yeah, Jim. I think we've all been yeah. Yeah. I mean that that's um so much of even when he's telling a story or working with some bizarre metaphor, it's 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 clearly not autobiography and yet it's it's about something, right? It's about something that, that we can relate to. Um exactly. The next song I'll play we're gonna we're gonna listen to uh the song called The Temptation of Adam. And, uh, so I'll just say a, a very brief thing about this. This is about a romantic relationship with all of its tensions and anxieties and potential tragedy compared with living underground with a, gida- a gigantic armed nuclear weapon. So in a bomb shelter slash missile silo with, with his lover. Um, is the is sort of the working metaphor here? Um, it's it's a pretty dire picture of relationships. But um, let's let's listen to it.
song. His songs have lots of words. This one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> basic idea, I think, um, is that there's a war raging on the surface. Marie and the narrator, by chance, have wound up together in the top secret location 300 feet under the ground. Uh, he loves Marie, but their relationship is 
tenuous, to say the least. He knows that when the war is over, uh, their love won't have a future on the surface. And uh, she seems to like him, but is he? Is that only because he's the only person there? <laughs> and uh, is it a relationship of, of convenience for her? He actually does have a way of ensuring that he is the only man forever. Should he do it? <laughs> and that's how the song ends. Uh, <clears throat> so it's kind of this moment of, of um, yeah, a second, second Adam perched on the, the threshold of a second fall. Anyway, um, one thing that I appreciate about this song is that it's, it's, uh, he, he sustains a coherent metaphor the whole, t- all the way through. Almost every line has some has some sort of interesting, clever play on on <laughs> nuclear weaponry and nuclear war, and um, from beginning to end, it's very it's he's really gone deep with this metaphor, more so than many people do. Any thoughts on this song? It's a lot to chew on. So yeah, I mean, you talk about how it had a lot of lyrics. And uh, it's kind of, it feels like it's kind of written like a hymn almost, you know, mm-hmm. every line's different, but do you feel like the Oh Marie part's kind of like the chorus of the song? Um, not not entirely, because you're right, it is like a hymn, it's just verse, 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 there's no refrain, right? He doesn't come back to a refrain, nothing is repeated, and uh, in that sense it is sort of a, a hymn-like structure. I'm not sure if I would say the Oh Marie is enough to warrant being called a refrain. Uh, that's just my, my thought. Do people get the joke about the crossword puzzles in the beginning? What five word, What five letters spell apocalypse? Yeah. W-W-I-I-I? <laughs> World War Three. <laughs> yeah. Took me a couple of years to get that, but I got it. <laughs> Um, this is sort of a, th- a theme of, of the, the, the tenuous nature of love for him. It's always under threat and toppling and unsure and not, not to be... Love is sort of held up in a lot of his music, especially romantic love, as, as the, the one true good, the most important thing, and yet it's always under threat. Do you know about his personal life? I mean, does he have a solid... He uh, he was married uh, for several years, had a, had a, a young daughter, and then went through quite a nasty divorce. Uh, wrote an album right after that, which was unlike a lot of his other albums, just kind of grinding away at a lot of that pain. And and uh, and um, since I think has I'm not sure if he's remarried, but he's with somebody else and is writing happy music again. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Um, let's listen to another song. This one is is probably the most enigmatic one, but I think it's it's worth listening to, just uh, you know uh, because it's quite beautiful. I love it, um, and also um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a good it's a good example of a song that it pays to enter in enter into before you fully understand and try and then and try to understand what's being said. So. <clears throat> Thank you. 
that lazy piano playing. <laughs> really kind of nice. Um, so, yeah, any, any uh, 
Is this immediately clear to, to people what that? <laughs> good, good, good. That's encouraging to me. The desert taking peyote or something? <laughs> maybe that'll explain a lot, maybe, yeah. So, uh, lots of people have commented online about this song and showed, shared lots and lots of opinions. And uh, I... Um, the one that I find most most compelling is that this is just this is just a moment of, of loneliness and sadness. It's a guy driving on a long straight highway in the desert, scanning the radio stations for something that will give him a sense that he means something. <laughs> some trying to trying to uh, look for some comfort to ease his loneliness or maybe ease his conscience. It's not specific, but he's 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 scanning the radio. So this idea of uh, Radio waves coming in miles and miles, bringing only empty boats. The idea of wave, the radio waves, but he's playing on that as a metaphor, bringing boats to him that are empty. There's no, there's nothing, nothing is, is um, making contact with him. Uh, out of the desert, feeling lost. The bonnet wears a wire albatross. I'm not sure what that's about, although it's, yeah. Um, it could be, it could be a truck, a hood ornament on the truck or something. It's, it's a. Uh, <coughs> In England, bonnet is the is the front hood of a car. Um, monster ballads and stations of the cross. So, mon- so monster ballads is a uh, in the 1990s. Monster ballads was a compilation album made of like glam rock classics uh, from all different people, and it just gets a lot of got a lot of radio play at the time. So, so he's tuning through the radio. All he gets is monster ballads and stations of the cross. In other words, Christian radio, and but of course that's a that's another play on on. Um, the Catholic liturgical practice, Good Friday, going, uh, remembering the death of Christ. Um, and then, yeah, I'm not going to go into, into a whole lot of great detail here, but one of the most interesting things about this song is, is the reference to, to Huckleberry Finn in the last verse, which is just uh, kind of out of nowhere. You know, like, where, where, what does that, how does that connect with the rest of the song? I was thinking about my river days. I was thinking about me and Jim. This is this is Huck Finn on a raft with Jim going down the Mississippi River, uh, passing Cairo on a getaway, getaway every steamboat like a hymn. So in the story Huckleberry Finn, they are they're floating down the river trying to get to to Cairo, Illinois, which they think is a place where Jim can escape, and get off the raft and be free. And yet in the fog at night they float past it and they miss it. And there's this moment of, of uh, sort of this tragic moment uh, in the story. Um, and yet, there's this incredibly evocative sort of hope, vaguely hopeful line of every steamboat like a hymn. Um, anyway, this, this is a, the, the kind of song that I think um, doesn't so much tell a coherent story to me as, as, as fill my mind with... Uh, poignant images, <laughs> you know, and sometimes sometimes songs will do that. Um, one of the things that he, that Josh Ritter focused on uh, on this album was a couple of years back now called Sermon on the Rocks, which was sort of Sermon on the Mount, Whiskey on the Rocks. Um, he's he's very um, irreverent towards religion. We'll be talking about his view of God in a few minutes, but. In the album Sermon on the Rocks, he uh, explores the many aspects of small town America, the good and the bad, 
It's that album more than any, any other is kind of about about small town life, ranging from nostalgia to return to the, to your hometown. It's so beautiful and everything will be great. To longing to get out of brutal circumstances and escape your hometown. Uh, to the crushing legalism of self-righteous Christian folks in the town. Um, he kind of covers the bases on this album. Uh, in an interview, he said this. It's one thing to write a grand saga about New York, but it's another thing to write stories about small towns where I feel like the relationships, you can put them under your magnifying glass and look at them a little more closely because there's so many archetypes. There's the local sheriff or whatever, the doctor, the lawyer, towns with one of everything in them. And I've always tried to write those and I've always had them in my head. So, so he's sort of using this idea of the hometown, the small town, as a, as like helpful parameters within which to write, because there's archetypes. You know, there's you could say the town sheriff, and there's an image that comes to mind. You know, people. Okay, so we're gonna play the song Cumberland. This is just sort of a fun, goof, goofy song that um, uh, we'll, we're gonna listen to. It. <laughs> no more talk. Take me as I am. I haven't met her yet, but I bet she lives in Cumberland. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so like this song is just, it's, uh, there's not a whole lot to really talk about. It's pretty straightforward, but I think it's the, it's kind of like this, um, excitement for the future and nostalgia for the past, sort of recapturing some wholesome, beautiful thing, you know, going back to the, to the small town, hopelessly romanticizing country life, you know, but he's kind of poking fun of, of himself at the same time while he's romanticizing country life. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I haven't met her yet, but I bet she lives in Cumberland. His elevation of, of Cumberland and all its perfections reaches its climax in the bridge where he says, where he actually quotes a gospel hymn. I mean, this is, if you get there before I do, you know, tell everybody I'm coming too. This is, this is referring to heaven, you know, in, in, um, in, in at least a couple old gospel songs. Uh, that's a direct, a direct quote. So it's always an interesting thing. Uh, I, I always sort of prick up my ears when, when, People who I know are anti-Christian employ gospel idioms to get their point across. It's just fascinating to me. Um, part of me wonders whether this, uh, sometimes gospel music and, and Christian imagery in general is the only imagery that's powerful enough to say what needs to be said sometimes, um, even in a totally secular context. Um, this is, if anyone's ever read the novel, My Name is Asher Lev. Has anybody read this? Is, uh, I'm, I can't go into it, but it's, there's a really fascinating example of that um, in that novel where this painter, who's a, an Orthodox Jewish painter, is trying to portray the the suffering that he witnessed in his mother when he growing up. And the only imagery that can come close to communicating what he wants to communicate about his mother's suffering is Christ on the cross. And But to paint this... Being an Orthodox Jew is, is the ultimate betrayal of his community. So the question, this is sort of, he, he can't, he can't find a, a better image anywhere, a better, uh, image anywhere to communicate just the forsakenness, uh, um, and so, anyway, worth reading. It's a, it's a good, a good novel. Uh, let's listen to another song. This is another hometown song, but, uh, a lot more bleak. <laughs>
Certainly, a, a pretty fatalistic view. It's it, it's sort of like you're you're. He's in this family in this town, locked in, stuck, uh, predetermined. Everything's going to happen. The devil's in his brother's eye. He's practicing preaching in the basement. Um, not so much because he believes it's true, but because he's trying to keep the devil away <laughs> at bay. You know, somehow. Um, and yet, there's sort of this chilling last verse when the when the the narrator is is picturing the the scene of a robbery, you know, before he before he does it. Um, so yeah, to- totally totally bleak. Um, yeah, the devil is the the devil is the 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 active one. God is just not even really on the scene. There's preaching, there's religion, but there's not there's no sense that God is an active presence. In the story at all, it's the devil that's actually at work, um, and you just you just sort of you, you get the sense this is a song about repeating the sins of the father, you know, again and again. Um, so we're getting a sort of a different, a more rounded picture of Josh Ritter's music. Um, I'm I'm interested in his his view of God and of the Christian faith, particularly. Um, I'm, I always like listening to songwriters that have issues with God and religion, but at the same time, they can't stop writing about it. You know, you'd think that somebody that hated God or didn't believe in God, maybe write one or two songs, be done with it and move on, right? But no, <laughs> it's just a, it's a constant itch that needs to be scratched, which is telling, I think, um, so the Christian faith, uh, it, it comes up again and again in his music, all with an attitude of hostility. He really, really does not like the Christian faith. He was raised in, in some sort of a Christian home. He talks about being raised by Christian parents. It was also a home that was very, um, encouraged intellectual curiosity. His parents were both professors of neuroscience, um, 
And he views these things as not really going together. It's, in his view, it's kind of like, yeah, it was a religious home, but my parents were like intellectually curious. So well, that doesn't make any sense, right? So it, he's very much has this idea that religion is opposed to inquiry of all kinds. He lost his faith uh, in his early teens, and he says this in an interview. Uh, it came down to being taught stuff about the rapture by somebody and then being so interested in it that I started to read about it and I couldn't take any of it. More and more it became clear to me, even as a 12-year-old or 13-year-old, I didn't understand the reasons why I had to be afraid of everything. I didn't understand why my friends would go to hell. I didn't see why I should go to heaven either. And he goes on. I think we have to be skeptical of religion. So much about religion demands that we be unskeptical. And I think that's why I don't consider myself a believer in many things. As an artist, as a thinking human being, I react against the idea that I'm supposed to have faith in something that I could not begin to understand. There's something about the idea of the golden rule that does not belong to religion. It belongs to us as human beings, that we should treat other people the way we wish to be treated, and it shouldn't get more complicated than that. So anyway, this is his kind of view, and I think this is... um, there's nothing unique about this. I mean, this is how so many people think, right, uh, today. He's just sort of a good example of, of someone who, who views religion as just being basically restrictive and dogmatic and uh, judging and rejecting of people. Uh, all we need is the golden rule, and we're all set. And the golden rule is something that's just intuitive or self-evident to, to us, right? When in reality, the only reason it's intuitive and self-evident to anybody is because... Uh, it comes from God and it was actually a significant part of what undergirds Western society. <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, he views it as self-evident and completely in, uh, independent of any religious belief. <clears throat> but you begin, I you know, sort of sympathize with the story there, being, being, being uh, brought up in, um, within a kind of Christianity that maybe I might have reacted to also had, it, had I been there. So, uh, if we let his songs speak for themselves, though, that's him in an interview, but if you let the songs speak for themselves, his objections to God's are not, are, to, to, to God is not, um, philosophical. He's not concerned with whether God exists or not, and how, how do we know these things. His objections are moral and emotional. Almost visceral. Uh, in other words, he, he thinks God's behavior is reprehensible. He's grossed out by God. Uh, why believe in a God who is less ethical than oneself is is the question, I think. Uh, he has, he's been referred to as, a, this is a new term for me, but a, a misotheist. Um, an atheist is someone that believes God does not exist. A misotheist is someone who strongly dislikes God. Um, miso is the same root that's in the word uh, misanthrope or in uh, misogynist, sort of uh, hatred for something. Um, interestingly, some some people, even some songwriters I admire, try to be atheists and misotheists at the same time. I don't believe in God, but I hate him, so I need to keep on writing songs about him. He doesn't exist, but I'm angry, and so I want to. I need I need to still address him somehow, as if he's there in order to um, in order to have somebody to complain to, because otherwise. Who, who is there to, to lodge a complaint to? 
In one of his longest songs, I would say it's his most misotheistic song. Uh, it's called Thin Blue Flame. I'm not actually going to play it because it's about 11 minutes long. Um, I'll read you some some uh, passages from it. Uh, yeah. And I will not attempt to explain everything he says here. But just get get a picture, get a sense of his... The sort of like... Um, um, a motive kind of image of who God is to him here. He's not he's not making arguments for why God doesn't exist. That's not his that's not what what's uh, in his mind. He says, "I became a thin blue wire that held the world above the fire, and so it was I saw behind heaven's just a thin blue line. If God's up there, he's in a cold dark room. The heavenly hosts are just the cold dark moons." He went down, he bent down and made the world in seven days, and ever since he's been walking away. Mm. Mixing with nitrogen in lonely holes where neither seraphim or raindrops go. I see an old man wandering the halls alone. Only a full house gonna make a home. And so, this picture of God is, is cold, distant, old and out of touch unconcerned, walking away, willfully irrelevant and disconnected from all that matters most to us. Um, Ritter takes a jab at what he perceives as the uh, exclusivity of Christianity, I think, when he says, only a full house going to make a home. This is, a, this is the phrase that, that comes back in the same song a couple different times. In other words, heaven can't be a home for anyone unless everyone is there. Only a full house is actually going to make a home. So this idea that that um, some people will reject God and not be in heaven, um, that is just repugnant to him, and, and the image that comes to his mind is an old man wandering around in a mansion by himself. Uh, not a very appealing picture of what it is to be with the Lord. Uh, Jake Meter is a writer and editor-in-chief uh, for Mere Orthodoxy. He wrote a really wonderful article. I found it yesterday which is really late in the game for a lecture when you find a great article that's on your topic. I'm like, oh. Anyway, but he wrote this article about Josh Ritter and Francis Schaeffer. Just think. Amazing. Um, and uh, he wrote, this is just a, he's very insightful. He loves Josh Ritter's music, and he's written a lot um, about it. But this, in this article, he says these things about Ritter's view of God. The issue is that if there is a God, then he is a cosmic killjoy a tedious bore of a being who would create us with the capacity to love and then fence it about with so many rules that the joy and wonder of it all is snatched away. When Ritter turns to religion, he turns to it in the way that a pagan romantic would, sensing it an enemy to the experiences that had given him such joy in the past. For Ritter, the defining problem with religion actually has very little to do with traditional theological questions about the existence or nature of God, Rather, Ritter simply cannot reconcile the thou shalt nots that he sees in Christianity with the pleasures of love. I think this is actually a helpful insight into into Ritter's music. Um, Love, especially romantic love, is the ultimate good. And that's sort of a common thread throughout a lot of his songs, Uh, both the songs that are joyful and the songs that are sorrowful. And um, God really is sort of portrayed as an enemy of these things. Um, a great big sort of arbitrary wet blanket on what should be a beautiful and natural freedom. 
of love. Uh, let's listen to another song. This is called Getting Ready to Get Down. This is also from his album, uh, Sermon on the Rocks. That's the end of the last song. all those words it helps that yeah, yeah yeah he's spitting them out yeah it would be, be hopeless without them on the screen I think but people get the basic idea of the song it's kind of yeah um I played this song for students ages ago um 
for one of our Wednesday night events here at the Brie, just to try to get people's reactions. <laughs> and uh, my not having grown up in uh, this kind of the kind of town that this is describing, or the kind of upbringing, Christian context that the song is describing, I didn't know whether is this just a ridiculous caricature of of narrow legalistic small town Christianity. Um, in which to get a good look at somebody, you can sum them up, whether or not the devil's in them or not, kind of thing. And uh, <clears throat> is this a caricature or a straw man, kind of, is is Josh Ritter just being cheap here? Maybe. There was a student at the time uh, who said, nope, that's a pretty good representation of the town I grew up in. <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, what do you all think? Is he being cheap? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is kind of common. Mm-hmm. At least, like in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it could be cheaper sometimes. Small towns like, What's that? I don't think it's necessarily limited to like small towns. Sure. Yeah. Any, you can get legalistic Christianity anywhere, like cities, wherever. Sure. Yeah. So you don't have to go as far as the Midwest. <laughs> no. 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 Were you saying? Were you saying something else, Gracie? Or would you? I was saying that I think there's truth to it, but I think. He can be cheap at the same time. Yeah. If he is, he did it well. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Who was saying? He got his start in, in Massachusetts or Boston. I think. Yeah. I'm, I don't have the details, but uh, I think he started sort of performing for the first time when he was living in Boston. I just wonder if this is like his view of that area of the country. You know, yeah. It's not necessarily there. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. The I mean, one of the, the the very very typical things is almost sort of a cliche objection to God is what kind of God would dot dot dot. I mean, this is one of the things I'm sure most of you have heard that. You know, what kind of a God would do that? You know, what kind of a God would say that? Um, and this is a typical way of phrasing sort of the ethical objections to God. Um, I could never believe in a God who would dot 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 dot, and in other words, which is quite a quite a, a uh, audacious thing to say, really, because it, it, it's basically a way of saying that if God does not conform to my moral standards, He forfeits the right to exist. I can't believe in a God that would do this, right? In other words, I have, I have a, an idea of what moral standards are, and if uh, if your idea of God is someone that, that disagrees with me about ethics, then that God can't exist. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that only can be said in a, in, a, in a climate in which relativism is just the air you breathe. <laughs> Everybody can have their own view of God, and that's just fine. But um, here, I mean, the, the, the theme of this song is very much sort of sexual liberation, Right. It's, it's a young woman in a small conservative town. The, the sort of female sexuality is very much sort of like repressed and controlled and blah, blah. And, and this person is, um, you know, comes back and says, what's the line? He says, uh, whoops. Eve ate the apple because the apple was sweet. What kind of God would ever keep a girl from getting what she needs? <laughs> right? Um yeah. Um, 
Go ahead. Yeah. Go. Yeah, he clearly sees himself as what was referenced in another um, song, I think, mm-hmm. or a quote that you put up there, the thinking human being. Mm-hmm. He is, and you know, you can't be a thinking mm-hmm. human being and and um, embrace this killjoy mm-hmm. right. in the sky. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's only to believe in God is you can only get there by, um, yeah, by by uh, because you're motivated by fear or because you're ignorant or there's no there's no good way to get to come to that belief. Yeah, yeah, that that would probably be his view. Yeah, yeah. He's also in some ways he's personifying what the devil does. The yeah. devil takes truth and mixes it with lie and makes mm-hmm. it worse off. Yeah. Black yeah. Yeah. Eyes. It's very much like that. Yeah. I like that he's even in kind of was revealed when he said the golden rule of we should mm-hmm. treat each other, not we do. Yeah. So I see him wrestling a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I like that. And I would rather have someone be angry with God than lukewarm. Yeah. So yeah. Even like you were saying, the image of the bottle is on the table, but the Bible is also there. Yeah. And he knows yeah. where the, the he knows where the bottle is leading. Yeah. And so he's got this kind of like I know this is where this road leads, and I don't know what to do with mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, and just struggling with it. Yeah. So. Blessed are the poor of Henrietta, Indiana, and blessed are those that get out. It's mm-hmm. kind of like that. That line was really, really. Yeah. A good one. I, I don't see the struggle. Mm. I think he's decided. Mm. And, and he keeps and putting the, it in there. He, I, no, I know. He, he can't leave it puts, alone, yeah. He puts it in there, but not like he's agonizing or or trying to come to a mm-hmm. sense of the truth. He's putting his half-baked mm. understanding of uh, mm-hmm. Christianity in words for people that probably a lot of them don't even understand Christianity mm-hmm. either. Yeah, our mm-hmm. culture, of our relativistic culture, it appeals to our rel- relativistic culture. Mm-hmm. I just don't see a real... Maybe it's because his songs are so upbeat mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I don't see... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this song, I, I don't see the conflict in this one either. Honestly, I think this is more just like, it's sort of a triumphant song. It is. It's kind of like, I threw off your shackles, I'm free yeah. now. I, I see I see reality more clearly than you do because you are old fashioned and backward and and uh, and even in the, the end of the song and, and when I get damned in the when you get damned in the popular opinion it's just another damn in the damned you're not given basically it's like I don't give a damn about what you think about me um, that's uh, it's this picture of sort of liberation right from all the restricted religious people and their views and yet. You know, be good to everybody. Be the strength to the weak. Be the this is this is the new creed that the that the character comes back with. You know, and it's completely. I mean, obviously there's there's qualifications that have to be made, but like 
be good to everyone, be a strength to the weak, be a joy to the joyful, Latin, like, it's all biblical. <laughs> it's still borrowing from, from Christianity, uh, but wanting to do away with Christianity, but hold on to the stuff that's good, that, that, that he likes, and then claim that that's just intuitive, that's just being human. Everybody knows that. Uh, without actually giving credit to, to the Christian faith um, and the Bible for creating that framework for morality that he's sort of depending on, right? So it's... it's uh, I like the song in some ways because it's so typical. It's so, I don't even think it's his best song, but I think it's so, it just, it, 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 it's an example of an attitude which is so prevalent. And, but it's also describing, um, like many of you have said, a, a, a pretty narrow and, and poisonous kind of Christianity which we shouldn't be shocked that it creates rebels. Mm-hmm. Right? This should not surprise us. If this is describing sort of reality, um. Yeah. This is. No, there, there's. What's the name of this one again? Uh, getting ready to get down. Okay. Yeah. I love the dry as a Yeah, 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 yeah. He's just full of, full of snappy one-liners, isn't he? Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Or it actually says, yeah. Dry as a page with King's Age. No ooh-la-las. No hell yeses. That's supposed to be hell in there. No hell yeses. No, I can't wait to see you again. Is. Anyway. Uh, let's see. We'll, we'll listen to, um, what time is it? Listen to one more song, I think. Uh, there is actually a song that, uh, if, if I feel there's time at the very end, we can listen to it, which is actually more of a, of a gospel song, completely out of step with everything else that he, that he has done. Um, and yet it's much more, it's called When Will I Be Changed? You know, from the devil that I am. Basically, it's much, it's much more of a sort of a confession of sin. But he writes, he, but he writes about it, um, as just u- using biblical language and biblical metaphors and imagery because it's an interesting thing to do, literary, as, you know, as a writer, right? As opposed to referring to this as a real sort of personal confession. He likes, this is part of what you were saying, Kathy, a minute ago. He likes all the biblical imagery because it's so concise. Because you can say Abraham and Isaac, and you don't have to go into you don't have to explain everything. Most people listening to that will get an image in their heads, and then you can move on. Um, Adam and Eve. Most of us get an image in our heads, and so it's very very concise and powerful to use those kind of kind of images as a poet or as a songwriter because they carry so much weight, and there's an image in people's heads already that you don't have to paint for them. And so he he has a very um, yeah, it's, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of songwriters do similar things. Um, anyway, this song is called Galahad. I'll just warn you, there, there's some, there's some um, sexual innuendos that are a little inappropriate in this one, but I think are uh, uh, appropriate to the song, I think. Uh, I don't think it's totally gratuitous, um, but it, it, it's, it's another, just one more, more notch of sort of the cynicism that he has. Um, Quite, quite an interesting song. <clears throat> nope. Nope. Sorry, it's later. I can have to. 
to go find it. Sorry. <clears throat> Let 
That song. Question. Yeah. Is the I at the end this different from the angel? So interesting. It's so it's so interesting. I think it is the angel, but but I think he just identifies himself as the angel in the end. Okay. That's what I, that's what I think. It's striking, isn't it? The last two lines. It's like, yeah. The last four lines are striking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so this <clears throat> I think that I think the, uh, the kind of heart of the song is um, when the angel starts to question him about heaven. Like, you know, I can't believe I'm asking, but. Um, What is it that makes you want to go to heaven? And and then there's this Galahad who has this very sort of righteous picture of virtue, um, having to do with denying denying all physical pleasures, denying you know denying oneself and remaining pure. The angels like that's no fun. You know that's the, you know it's not going to be fun, right? And the angel the angel is much more sort of a um, a man of the world than Galahad is. Or at least has those longings, and in the end, rather than drinking from the Holy Grail and living, he drinks from the Holy Grail and dies. And then the angel gets to put on his clothes and go off and live, live a rowdy life, <laughs> live the life that Galahad has has renounced, right, by being holy. Um. So, <clears throat> uh, again. This is just a, a very, very, you know, bizarre and creative way of kind of communicating the same thing. That God and heaven and the Christian faith, the life of obedience to God, is, is the opposite of joy in every sense. Uh, it's a denial of all, of all pleasure. Uh, it's a suppression of all desires. It's, it's inhuman. It's not a human thing to do. And so the, the, while the angel here is a total cynic, kind of a jerk, just murdered Sir Galahad, uh, he's more of a human. He's more, he's actually more, uh, living more of a human life, um, than Galahad is by trying to renounce all pleasure. <clears throat> so, uh, Sometimes, you know, I think if I ever run into Josh Ritter, like, what would I say to him, you know? Um, <laughs> um, you, know you can't make somebody stop hating God who wants to keep hating God. You just can't really do that. Uh, but one of, the, one of the sad things about him for me 
that many of the things that he's reacting against, I would react against also, but as a Christian. Um, the God he hates is not the God who I believe is really there. And so, in a sense, and I think, we, I think a, a lot of times we can actually say this to, to people that we know, uh, who deny the existence of God, and I would say, yeah, well, I don't believe in that God either, actually. I, I, I'm in agreement with you. If that's who you think God is, then I am an atheist, too, about that God. <laughs> it's not actually the God who is real and who is there. Um, the Christian faith does not actually negate our humanity. It actually gives the best explanation for the confused chaos of glory and ruin that we see in Ritter's music. Um, so to be a human, according to the Bible, is actually a glorious thing, something that God thinks it's worthwhile to restore um, at ultimate cost to himself. So to be fully human, that's the, the end and goal of Christianity and the coming of Christ is to make us fully human again. Restoring the image of God to us again. Um, all the things in life that move Josh Ritter by their beauty are actually gifts from God. Human love is a thing God invented. Sex is not an act of rebellion against God. He invented it. And it's a gift from Him. Obviously, there are parameters that we need to place around God's gifts that He calls us to place around those gifts and those parameters are very irksome to people like Josh Ritter. <laughs> the idea that there's um, anything other than totally free love, I think, is irksome to him. But nevertheless, God is still the one who invented pleasure. Uh, beautiful things are only beautiful because they quote him, because they refer to him, the source of all good and beautiful things. So, this is probably where I would start, if I ever get a chance to talk to him, but... Um, We'll probably talk about music a lot first, <laughs> but um, I'm going to end there. There's, there's literally hundreds more songs we could listen to, but that would be unwise. So, any other any questions? Anything people want to comment on? Would you ever write him a letter? Maybe. I don't know. I haven't thought about it carefully. Yeah. Did you ever get to see him in concert? I never have. No, no, I've never actually seen him. I would love to. He's coming here, I think, or near here. Uh, he's coming to Massachusetts somewhere. Is he? November 19th. Oh, really? Okay. Northampton, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm Western Mass. Isn't that your birthday? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be far away, unfortunately, but it's the day after my birthday, yeah. Oh, I'll be out of town, be sadly. No, oh, that's yeah. a bummer. <laughs> Is, uh, isn't about me, folks. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Josh Ritter. I have a question. Yeah. Do you think there's ever a time? I don't take offense to any of this, but mm. like, if there is an artist or creator of a TV show or something that outwardly like declares that they hate God, is there a line for us to be like, mm, that makes me kind of uncomfortable, mm. or does it? I get torn sometimes because there will be an artist or a novel or whatever, but then I'll read some of their views on things and it yeah. makes me feel like settled, torn between like, is it still okay to enjoy yeah. this work of art given their direct like hate for yeah. 
Yeah, um, that's such a good question, and it's, but it's not. I don't think I don't think it's a question that there's one answer for, um, because uh, there, to me, I think it's, it can be a matter more of, of personal wisdom as to what you want to expose yourself to, um, which which means you have to know yourself and to know the kinds of things you're vulnerable to. Um, I don't, I don't, I get very uneasy making rules about where is the line after which we shouldn't listen to something. Um, because it's, uh, well, sometimes, I'm not saying this is you, but sometimes that can be a very, a very fear based re- reaction that, that somehow if I expose myself to this, I'll be contaminated <laughs> and, I, and I'll be, I will, I'll lose my faith or I'll be corrupted by it in some way. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's good to, as much as we can, understand people who hate God mm-hmm. and understand not just what they're saying, but why they might be saying it um, and what's led them to that that place. And, uh, and if we don't, if we, if we draw the line... In too safe a place, we'll never we'll never begin to engage or understand sort of where where that person is coming from. And for people like Josh Ritter, he's not articulating some grand, outlandish view. He's articulating what I think are the views of like millions of people around us in this country. It's sort of standard. His objections to God are kind of standard. <laughs> it's not not even that. I mean, he's a wonderful songwriter, amazingly creative songwriter, but his like. The way he deals with God is almost his like least creative work, in a sense. It's like it's like yeah, okay, I've heard this a million times, you know. Um, but it's good to listen to it and understand like as much as we can about it. Um, particularly if we have any desire to to communicate across that chasm, you know, across the. Um, so I I think um, that I think we I think Christians should be open to the. To, to listening to all kinds of different music, watching all kinds of different films, but exercising personal wisdom as to whether this is um, what I am called to do or not do. I think there's plenty of songs that some people shouldn't listen to at all, you know, if they have particularly stuff that, you know, it could be perfectly innocent but may trigger some sort of past experiences and stuff that were, you know, um, if you always did drugs and listened to the Rolling Stones with your friends, but you're trying to kick drugs, probably don't listen to a lot of Rolling Stones, whatever, you know, um, there's, there's a, music has a real power of association and, 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 um, but that's a matter of personal wisdom, not a, not a, not a rule for everybody. Um, any other thoughts on that? It's a really, it's a really good question. Jake? Yeah, I just think that's interesting to sort of dive into people's lives that are, I, I think, like trying to empathize with a person. I mm-hmm. think is a is a doorway to eventually talk about truth, mm-hmm. like what you're saying, with sort of a version of God. Mm-hmm. And I'll, and it's interesting because a lot of his songwriting has this version of God really tied with specific people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And people that he's seen, like, okay, this is a God they believe, like, mm-hmm. this is, and they're yeah, they're yeah. acting like this, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, like a view of God is, is like tied to, to like a moment of being mistreated by a particular person and, and, and that the image of God he has is sort of yeah, bound to that, yeah. Yeah? It just makes me think of, of uh, so much work coming out of Labrie has been trying to address the issue of humanness. Mm-hmm. What is real humanness and what is it to be made in the image of God? Mm-hmm. I mean, to think of Right along Jared's book, Being Human. Mm-hmm. And, and that objecting to, just what he's objecting to, how the Christian church has lost that and destroys it yeah. graphically yeah. before our faces mm-hmm. and in people's lives with such tragedy, but also in the non Christian world. Yeah. Because what he doesn't, at least in the songs that you've put on here, he doesn't show you how humanness is crushed in mm-hmm. the secular scene. Yeah. And, and there's no, uh, as you pointed out, there's mm-hmm. no. Uh, alternative for uh, a base for something better, right? But, but uh, uh, it, it's so the, the, the he, he makes a huge amount off the the uh, the irony that the Christian faith, which promises such wonderful things, yeah. is actually denying it. And, and yeah. he's right yeah. for some of it. Yeah, and, and uh, but it's it's really worth um, I think again so much of the work of Labrie has been trying to try to say. No. Yeah. Uh, in God is real humanness mm-hmm. in its fullness. Uh, yeah. in, in terms of artistic sexuality, sort of the whole the whole scene is worth doing. I think it's 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 the type of thing that I've spoken to many people who've who maybe aren't as 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 far in terms of their rejection of God as he is, but are are, are near it. Because their experience has been so 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 bad and crushing, and sort of denying of of their humanity, and sometimes those those people, when they come to Labrie, they spend a lot of time, very good and useful time, trying to tease apart what is the Christian faith that I have been raised with, and is that the Christian faith, <laughs> or is that an example of? Um, a version of the Christian faith which has been distorted and twisted and corrupted in some way, and what what is a more biblical understanding, what is a truer understanding of what the Christian faith is. And that takes a long time sometimes to tease that apart. Uh, am I, you know, can I reject some of the things that I find repulsive about my upbringing without rejecting the heart of Christianity? Is the heart of Christianity something different? And um, And that's... That's a teasing apart that that he, at least if his songs are any indication, has not <laughs> has not done. Um, so maybe if I met him, I'd tell him to come to the brain. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, because he's really because again, like I said in the, in the conclusion here, it's just what what he's rejecting is something that I would probably be rejecting too, but but from a Christian perspective as opposed to from a um, like a deconverted perspective. Yeah. yeah. Also, somewhat. I mean, it's it's also somewhat helpful to see places where you can start as a lo- launching off from different topics of misunderstanding. Because mm-hmm. There's so many things that are so well, no topics that are well known but totally misstated and misused. Yeah. If you kind of pick a few, if you have a conversation with someone, maybe someone who loves a song, and say, "Wow, you know, boy, 
crocheting you mm-hmm. was something deeper mm-hmm. that God had in mind, something that was actually loving that you didn't understand, or mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. it, it can be a real uh, opportunity to, mm-hmm. to share something meaningful in little pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris. Um, I have a question about some of the one of the earlier songs. Mm-hmm. Kind of go on a different track. Yeah. Um, at the end of the song where he talks about Huck Finn, or he uses that reference, yeah. he, he has that refrain of um, sighing, but then he switches it to smiling in the end. And yeah. wonder, I didn't really yeah, sense yeah. a change in the emotion of the song, so yeah. I was wondering why he changed it in the end and what kind of made that change. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it goes from sighing just a little bit, sighing just a little bit. <clears throat> Just the very last line. You know. I don't. I don't have a. Um, I don't have a good answer for that. I, I've sort of wondered the same thing. Is, is yeah. this one about being lonely? Yeah, the maybe, one sort of driving in the car and switching the radio. Maybe it's finally kind of coming, <clears throat> starting to accept it a little bit, mm-hmm. like a moment of, you know, leaning into being lonely. Mm-hmm. It's not always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I haven't read Huck Finn in forever, but is it kind of just like an ironic smile at like passing Cairo almost? Or mm-hmm. <clears throat> Maybe. I mean, it's kind of interesting. He, he has all these references to Egypt throughout the song. <coughs> Katie dressed the fairest daughter of the pharaoh's son dressed with gold leaf pyramids or something. This is line. And then there's a line about Cairo. But that's a line, that's a an allusion to Huck Finn. I, d- I don't really know. This this is one of his more um, enigmatic songs to me, but it, um, it doesn't mean there's not an answer to it, but I just, I'm not sure. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, John. Yeah. I'm, go- I'm going back to something you said before we even started listening to the music, and you said when he played, he like expresses a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tunes in general have a very joyful feel to them, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't think I, I got any like cozy feeling from any of the lyrics. Though. Mm. I mean, do they have songs that are maybe a little more cozy? Or? Yeah, it's a good point. No, I, I've seen him, I've seen him like sing songs that are just like really dense and sort of like critical and you know, like. But he's just like he's just loving it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, This is all, it's a, it's some, a, yeah. some of the, like he has multiple references to like the golden rule and he likes the golden rule because it seems to be this at least in his mind is like this sort of universal ethical principle that you don't have to be a Christian to hold on to yeah. so he, he likes it but he thinks that it stands on its own um yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good, I'm not sure I have an answer for that one either, yeah. He, he, he I mean, it, I think it may even be as, as simple as he just loves to sing. <laughs> but, like, I've seen him, I've seen just a, uh, you know, a video of him playing where he's just like, just super exuberant and like just excited to be playing with his band and just loves it and, and it's almost, it almost, um, what song he happens to be singing is irrelevant. And then where, where does he kind of compare in the music world? Is he like a Ray Lamontagne or like, like 
Um, I mean, Ray LaMontagne is more of a sort of a soulful singer without, without with nothing like the kind of lyrical density. Well you know, in terms of how well known he is, oh, I don't know. I can't answer those questions, Jonathan. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, he's like he's. He's appreciated by a lot of people that like songwriting. They like good good lyrics and like don't want to just um, bop along to a song, but want to listen to what's being said. You know, like people dig into his dig into his lyrics, and and um, so it's not he's not like pop radio exactly. Even though some of his songs are catchy, um, yeah, that's a it's a good question. He's he's I mean, he's done decently well for himself because he's fairly well known, but. Um, <coughs> Yeah, I don't know. I may, I may wrap it up. Unless anyone has something urgent, urgent they want to say about Josh Ritter. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah.